Hey everyone, Andy Kay here. I help to manage these meetups behind the scenes and I'm going to give a brief introduction before I turn it over to Andrew. Thank you everyone for joining us live and welcome to our 31st virtual weekly hangout. Wow. Just a reminder that we'll leave plenty of space in these meetups for discussion and Q&A. So if you have questions for Andrew or if a question is sparked during his talk, you can use the raise your hand feature and at the right time, I'll give you the audio to ask your question, or you can type your question in the chat section. And at the right time, I'll read your question to Andrew. So thanks everyone for joining us today. Without further ado, I'll turn it over to Andrew. Thanks Andy. Hey everybody, nice to be back with you all. Beautiful uh, autumnal day here in Colorado. It's close to 80 degrees, but don't worry. There's no such thing as global warming. <laughs> so a couple of things, uh, the way these work, if you haven't attended one of these before, this is really a venue principally designed to just stay connected and uh, have an opportunity for you to share your questions, um, comments and the like. So I usually just make a few kind of preparatory comments about what, whatever comes to mind. And then I turn it over to you. So you can write, you know, like Andy said in the chat column or, or best for me, if you just come on live. But a couple of um, housekeeping things, and then there's gonna be a kind of a nice big drought. I, I don't have anything going on until January, which is great. I can't wait <clears throat> to get back to my research and writing. But we did do, we did start this Tibetan Book of the Dead class through a new entity. I've never worked with them before, but they're great. And he's gonna post a link, it's called Embodied Philosophy. It's a wonderful, wonderful group of people. We got like 300 in it, um, which is awesome. And these are, these people are smart. I mean, really great, intelligent, Group. And so you can definitely still come on board. The recordings, uh, you just missed the first session. The recordings will be available for quite some time. Um, so there's that thing. Uh, I think I mentioned before, Francis Tiso, this amazing Christian mystic theologian scholar. We're actually starting to pin down a date, probably end of next week or beyond to talk about his unbelievable book, Rainbow Body and Resurrection. Um, he's an amazing scholar. I'm also in, in uh, active conversation with my new bud, David Loy, um, who I regard as one of the most sensitive Buddhist thinkers, philosophers on the planet. And I'm so fortunate that he lives 15 minutes from me. So we're in active conversation. Um, in fact, I've already designed my half. We're, we're gonna be doing a course together on understanding blind spots and obstacles on the spiritual path. Um, and so I'm super excited about working with David. Um, if you haven't been introduced to his work, he's amazing. So more on that. We're looking maybe in, in um, January for a gig um, with David, so we'll see. So yeah, that's it in terms of this uh, shameless self-promotion bit. <laughs> so this is what I thought about. I, I took my dog for a walk and I was thinking, well, what should I talk about today? So. What came to mind is a little bit about, um, was generated by this whole political thing this week, which is still, I mean, you know, we're still in a bardo. <clears throat> what an interesting bardo this is. And, and what I reflected on is how easy it is that we give away our power, that we uh, confer at it, it, it levels that are really quite stupefying. We imbue, project, confer power onto objects, other people, Etc. that they do not inherently have. And then that power comes back to haunt us. And so what, what I've been saying ever since uh, the last election is, you know, kind of this little 
maxim I said to myself, I'm simply not going to let this political situation um, take power over me. Um, I'm not going to imbue these politicians with a power they don't inherently have. And so this ties into a, one of my favorite deeper dive topics. The word in Tibetan is shenwang, S-H-E-N-W-A-N-G. Shen means other and wang means power. So other power. And what it refers to, it refers to a number of things, but it, in my work with it, it refers to just this, that we are always giving away our power. And in so doing, this, this uh, unwitting, unconscious, insatiable propensity we have to project onto others, this projection thing is amazing. It doesn't just occur on secondary tertiary levels with what we know as psychological projection. And that of course is, is ubiquitous. Um, in integral theory, which I'm a big fan of, it constitutes the, the th third of the four, waking up, cleaning up, I'm sorry, waking up, growing up, cleaning up, showing up. It, this deals with cleaning up, cleaning up how we project. Um, psychologically, we see that when we project moods onto the day, but even more foundationally, um, this kind of ontological projection, how we're just always conferring onto externality uh, power doesn't have. And so what I do in my work is I use, excuse me, the medium of the dream to really explore this. <clears throat> because when we're in a non-lucid dream, a dream where we don't know that we're dreaming, what makes that dream powerful to the extent that you can have you know, amazing, horrific nightmares where you break out in a sweat and your heart's pounding, is this unconscious um, transfer of power where we empower the dream with a, a reality, reified, re reified means to make real, a reified status it does not inherently have. And so it's a fantastic way, the dream is a fantastic way to look at our role as magnificent creators. That in the dream, we create an entire world. It, it's solipsistic in that sense, ultimate projection. And when we wake up to that, um, projection, that is what transforms a non-lucid dream to a lucid one. So the display is still there, the politicians are still there, coming back to the daily state. But what previously had so much power over you no longer had that same kind of power. So that's the great gift of lucidity. And so what these practices do, whether it's dream yoga, whether it's meditation, is it's a, it's a transfer of power back to its original source. That'd be us. And so with all this, this whole political thing, it's like, you know, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to um, get so swept up in this stuff. I'm not going to get so obsessed. And I am not going to confer upon these politicians a power they don't inherently have. Because otherwise, I'm just going to get all stirred up. And hey, this is what the media is about. I mean, whether it's MSNBC or Fox News, right? They're there to sell and they're there to whip up all this stuff. And so um, it's just a very interesting thing to explore how it is that we're really not victims of these politicians. We're not victims even of the external world. We're victims of our imputations, projections upon this world, which then like a boomerang come back to control us. And so in the traditional um, spiritual literature, they talk about SIDDHI, S-I-D-D-H-I, psychic power. Comes in two forms. Uh, relative city is the more conventional, you know, clairaudience, clairvoyance, the ability to fly all these psychic thingies. I mean, that's okay. That, that if you use it properly, that's okay. But that also can turn into a really powerful kind of sorcerer's trap. 
So what's much more important is uh, absolute city. Um, and so the, the jingle that, that I use is that relative city, relative power, psychic power, is when you have power over the world. Absolute city is when the world no longer has power over you. That's the real power. The world no longer has power over you. And so this, to me, it's, it's just a fantastic opportunity. And otherwise, what is just such a series of upsets and upsetting circumstances and obstacles to um, understand this process and to work with it. That um, can we in fact transfer power back to its original source, take ownership. That's what projections, working with projections, cleaning up is taking ownership, owning up to our projections, whether they're psychological or, or the more foundational projection that's beyond our scope to discuss today, which is actually the projection that creates the sense of duality altogether. That's the fundamental projection, that there's a world out there separate from you. There, there isn't, there isn't. We project that. That's not the way things are. And then upon that foundational projection, then immediately cascades all these other secondary, tertiary, quaternary projections that we then fundamentally live our lives completely lost and embedded in. And um, this huge topic in psychology and spirituality, but here's one last little thing that may be of some benefit to unearthing the ubiquity of these projections. Just see if it's not true for you, that whenever you're affected more than informed, when something affects you more than it informs you, you're probably dealing with a projection. And so just there, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm projecting all the time. Yeah, yeah, we're projecting all the time. It levels it, I mean, really, that's what it means to be asleep. We project at levels we are hardly even aware of, creating the very sense of self and other upon this uh, kind of cascade of uh, projections. So that's all I wanted to say for today. Um, at this point, um, we open it up. We talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. So it's Morley, it's Morley, it's Morley. This event is Morley about uh, uh, interacting with you all. So please, questions, comments, and the like, more, more than welcome. We have about an hour or so. Fire away. All right, great. Uh, for the first question, let's bring in Wendy with the audio. Thank you. Hey, Wendy. Um, I have lots of questions. Okay. I'll go with, I'll go with this one. Okay. I, I love some of the exercises you've had us do, uh, you know, looking at the object. Oh, in the class, in the book where, study. In the, where the book, the object disappears, appears, the background becomes fluid. And then you also had us uh, imagine an apple. I want to say that apple is a more fixed memory for me than most of my waking life. Is it the apple of your eye? <laughs> I don't know, but I actually bit into it. I mean, I have a very clear memory of it. Cool. And, and this is about um, what's real, what's not real, what's lucidity, what's not lucidity. Uh, when I had my, so I'm really new. I've only had a few lucid experiences that were okay. very powerful. Uh, and now what's happening in my lucid dream sometimes is like, oh, I'm in a dream. And then I have the experience that I'm, I know I'm also in my bed at the same time. Sure. Can I still be lucid and be aware of myself in, 
in my bed or is that my imagination as I continue with the dream? You know, it's hard to say. Um, uh, you know, I can't quite do a Vulcan mind meld with you right. and tell you. But if you're, if you're actually, uh, you know, we're, we're not, number way to answer this, we're not um, usually like 100% in one state or the other. Um, even new scientific measurements are, are determining both during the night and during the day that part of your brain, literally, part of your brain can be sleeping or dreaming and another part of your brain can be awake, literally. And so it's not all just one, it's what's called brain synchrony. It's not always 100% synchronized. And so therefore you can have these kind of hybridized experiences where you know, you're, you're kind of asleep, you're kind of awake, you're kind of dreaming, but you're not 100% dreaming. And so I can't say with total assurance because uh, some of it could be imagination. Um, mm -hmm. you, would, you would have to do some kind of testing thing like set up an external environment in your room that was somehow unequivocal that when you experienced it, you would say that can only happen when I'm in the room. So I, 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 I don't have enough data to tell you what's actually going on with you, but I can tell you that it's not at all uncommon to be these, these hybridized states. And on one level, it, you know, I mean, the, one of the ways it manifests is um, like if it's really cold in the room, for instance, very often I'll dream about skiing and snow mm -hmm. and ice. And so there's, there is this kind of, you know, your reticular activating system, which is your alert system. That is, you know, that's on alert, um, creating this kind of tacit radar that uh, can bleed through information from the inside to the outside. And so you can use that process parenthetically for certain types of induction. But in terms of what you're asking, I can't tell you for sure what's happening with you, but I can tell you that the brain does work in that particular way. Okay. So, so it's possible. Absolutely. So I, I'm not really having what I'd call lucid dreams, I, but I'm having so many more vibrant, long dreams that I remember. It's That's really awesome. fun. That's, celebrate that. The, then the other thing I have sometimes when I wake up in the morning is I go in and out maybe 20 times in yeah. a half hour. Uh, yeah. I'm dreaming. No, I'm in my bed. No, I'm right. dreaming. No, I'm in right. my head. So I, I try and tell myself, well, that's progress. <laughs> You're Absolutely. going in the right direction. Yeah. I, I have a hard time staying. Yeah, that's, that's a hypnopompic phase, right? So mm -hmm. going into sleep is hypnagogic. Coming out of sleep is hypnopompic, leading away from mm -hmm. sleep, leading away from the god of sleep. It's also a form of liminal dreaming. You can use that space. You can play with it. Go back and forth and, you know, pop pop up, become a little bit awake, grab onto a thought maybe, tuck it back into the dream, see if you can watch that inflate into a dreamlet. So liminal dreaming, I, I work with this like all the time. So even though I may not have a lucid dream every night, I have liminal dreaming every single night because I work with it, lucid sleep onset is I'm going to sleep. And then when I get up in the morning, part of the joy of this practice is languishing in bed and just kind of like you're saying, dipping out, dipping in and out. And then I explore that kind of plasma of the mind, you know, that Bardo space where you're not fully awake, fully asleep, you're in this liminal space. I think those are super interesting to just explore. So that's valid. I mean, that is a totally kind of larger embrace of uh, lucidity or awareness in the nocturnal space. So yeah, continue. Go for it. Okay. Thank you. I have a lot more questions, but I'll let someone else ask. Yeah. Thank you question. for that. We'll, we'll pick it up next week. So I appreciate okay. that. Thank you. See you, Wendy. Thanks, Wendy. All right. Next, we'll bring in Stan and then Ted.
Okay, um, yeah, following up on that question, um, are you able to hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, I haven't had a lucid, a real lucid dream yet, but I have had a lot of that um, hypno pump up, hypno, hypno whatever <laughs> stuff. <laughs> and okay. um, um, what I've, what, what I'm wondering is a lot of times in those situations, it's like I'm watching the dream as the dream is like on a screen or something. It's like, yeah. I'm, I'm like in a separate room from the dream. And is that, is a lucid dream when you aren't in a separate room, you're actually within the dream itself. And is, is there an important distinction there? There, it's just different types of dreaming. So you know, what you're talking about is, is called witnessing dreaming or what uh, Ken Wilber talks about is pellucidity, pellucidity, which is just what you're mentioning. It's just kind of this dispassionate observer. It's like you're just watching the display on the theater of your mind. That's a very powerful and completely viable form of lucid dreaming. You're completely awake to the dream as if you're in another room, but you just kind of, whether volitionally or, or not, decide not to participate, not to act, not to do anything with it, just watch. It's actually a wonderful kind of meditation where you just watch the dream images unfold with, with awareness. And so that's a lucid dream. Not all lucid dreams need to be engaged. Some of them you can just witness that way. So you can definitely talk about that as a lucid dream. As long as you know that you're dreaming and that's taking place, that's a lucid dream. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And, and again, that, more, that expands you know, the embrace so that you start to see, woo, you know, maybe I'm doing this more than I know. And, and parenthetically, it's also possible um, to have a lucid dream and not remember it. Um, this is mm -hmm. the difference between access and phenomenal consciousness. You can have a phenomenal experience of a dream and actually not bring it to access awareness. Um, and so that's also somewhat interesting because then it's like, hey, I might be having these things and not even know it. Um, originally, I thought, how is that even possible? But then I talked to a lot of people and then I, I dug up the philosophical lingual around it. And the philosophers actually talk about it using those two terms. So yeah, something's happening. Okay. Dream Thanks. on. <laughs> Welcome, Stan. Thanks, Stan. All right, next we'll bring in Ted and then Sonia. TEDx. TEDx. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Ted. Um, I need some guidance on, you know, in my practice or my time of practicing in 20 plus years, and I know you've had many ex more teachings on different meditation methods and, and so on. I find that I have difficulty deciding which practices to concentrate on. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, let's just use the two that we're doing in the various classes. One is the open awareness when we're looking out at a bright, wide space. And then the other one where we dim the room and we go to a specific object. And then, you know, on and on and on, all the different visualizations that I've done with the tantric practices. And what I find myself doing quite often is I'm in meditation and I'm doing one of the practices. And then I think, oh, I should be doing this practice, you know, 
And then, well, let's see, the, 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 the Tuesday night class is coming up. So therefore I need to do this practice. So maybe a little guidance on uh, other than disciplining myself. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, great problem, right? What a wonderful problem to have to choose between all these different skillful means. I mean, maybe one thing at the outset is stop shooting on yourself, right? <laughs> we, we always should on, we should on ourselves and we should on others. You know, I should be doing this. I should be doing that. You should be doing that. Stop shooting on each other. So, um, you know, this is part of it depends on your resonance. Part of it depends on what feels right for you. Um, part of it, you know, like what your passion is, what feels good and, and kind of resonates with your MO. Um, and, you know, part of it is also doing practices that stretch you out of that comfort zone, you know, doing things that may stretch you beyond your normal kind of comfort bandwidth with meditations. And so it's, it's really difficult to say like which one you should be spending the most time with. Um, I personally find that, you know, the older I get, then the more um, death starts to rear, rear its more apparent head. I tend to pay a little bit more and more attention to the kind of the absolute level practices, the formless practices um, you know, the subtle practices that I will take refuge in when I die. And that's just me. That's just my disposition. But, you know, what you're, you're a student of Vajrayana. One synonym for Vajrayana is Upayayana, the vehicle of skillful means. There's so many technologies, so many tools. We, we should be, we should celebrate how many we have to use. And so, um, yeah, you know, short of having a teacher who will tell you, oh, Ted, you need to do, you know, 100,000 of these and then a million of those. You know how that works. Um, you know, kind of this freestyle approach, we have to become our own meditation instructor. And sometimes that's not always easy, but that's the fruition. At a certain point, you know, you want to put the teacher or the guru out of business where you become, you trust your inner voice, trust your inner guru. So one thing you may play with is, is see if you can incubate a dream. See if you, with intentionality, see if you can get some instruction from your dream. Um, that's what I do with the sort of thing I was, I, I'll make a concerted aspiration incubation. You know, I, I, I want some guidance in my dream. Um, and then that also increases and opens my antenna for teachings from the symbolic guru, where the world then can give me this type of feedback. <clears throat> um, so I think once you set that intentionality and open your heart and mind, <clears throat> you might find <clears throat> yourself kind of zoning into the ones that you should be doing. Um, but somewhere in there, Ted, you know, you're, you're a pretty sensitive, wise guy. I think you can um, kind of find your way. I tend to have, like I said, one central core set of practices. And then depending on the situation, I bring in these augment, uh, augmenting, supplementing practices just to support. But, you know, fundamentally, everything in this tradition circumambulates these teachings on emptiness, the formless practices. So um, that for me is the core. That's really the core. And then around that, then all this other stuff basically supports that fundamental journey of understanding the formless dimensions of, you know, nature of mind practices. Those are the, there's a reason they're considered that the apex practices. Um, and so with someone with your practice history, maybe that would be the one that you spend more and more time in because that's, that's where you're going to go when you die. And that's what you want to get more familiar with and really take in like, you know, when you die, you want to go into the bardos holding the hand of your friend, holding the hand of a practice you're really familiar with. And to me, um, personally, these are the nature of mind practices. So something like that. Yep. Thank you very much. You bet, friend. See ya.
Thanks, Ted. Uh, all right, next we'll bring in Sonia and then Thomas. Hi, hi, Andrew. Hi, hi everyone. Uh, always so great to join this group. Uh, so, you know, I'm a Vajrayana practitioner now. Okay. Um, came cool. through decades of sort of strange paths and have studied. I actually came uh, as a sort of more Sutrayana in my early part of the path. I was with ACI, you know, Geshe Michael Roach group that early on. Not anymore, but um, at any rate, um, I knew that I needed to be using my nighttime optimally to practice as well. Like I must have done this in prior lives because I was so attracted to it, but they wouldn't talk about it. Nobody would teach me about it. They just kept it completely mum. And so I found eventually Charlie Morley and I went to um, Omega for his great, he's amazing. And he's I cool. subsequently had, so yeah, he's, and the thing is that he, his teacher, uh, Lama Yeshi Loso at Sami Ling, I actually met him in the summer of 19 at uh, Charlie's recommendation. He said, oh, I said, oh, no, not advanced enough to see him. He said, oh, no, no, you don't know when he's going to die. Go immediately. And so I, I had to be in England anyway that summer with my old father. And anyway, so I did get to meet him, you know, because what should I be trying to lucidly dream about? Anyway, I'm making a bit of a long story here, but I've done of them and I, I, I love them your teachings and how articulate you speak to understanding fluency and the language skills to be able to make it uh, comprehensive to us which is great thank you and I've also studied I also study with um, you know um, Tenzin Lot, uh, Bob Thurman and have for years and also now with Dr. Nita and now when you have uh, Bardo I mean um, Dream yoga teachings um, from a Tibetan teacher, um, they, you, it's taught quite differently, certainly, than Charlie Morley. Although Lama Yeshe will say, if you want to learn to lucid dream, go to Charlie. He'll teach you, and then I'll tell you what to do within the dreams. And, and actually, Charlie really helped me um, understand what the instructions were. So I'm going through a little of that right now because I'm doing this 100-day um, Utah Ningtig with Dr. Nita at the moment, and uh, which is really wonderful. And right now, I mean, going through everything in the whole Ningtig, which is amazing opportunity, but we're literally on dream yoga now, again, even though I've done a whole, you know, weekend retreat with them on it. So the uh, mantra instruction, Om Anuttara, um, is I would love you to riff on that a little bit to the degree that you feel that you should with everybody involved. I don't, um, I mean, they teach it quite openly. A lot, anyone could go register for those courses. So hopefully I'm saying things that are all okay. Um, but uh, apparently, I mean, and then become, you know, Amitabha in your throat chakra and being um, red and, and having the energy come and go. Um, today, it seemed to me in the teaching I had that it was some, um, could make the dream, the lucidity that much more powerful with the elements. And I would love a little deeper explanation on that, if you would like to. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, a little bit. So let me ask you a quick question. Are you taking, are you taking the deep dive thing that we're doing this week at Sedona, uh, the online thing? Are you doing that one? You know, I have a, a daughter and a husband and a household. So I can't, I'll do it after. No, 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 it's okay. It's okay. The only reason I mentioned that is because we'll be talking about this in that weekend. But since you're not taking it, that's uh, cool. Can I do it so, after the fact? Like in, if I registered for it, could I just do it when I'm able to and draw oh, it out over time? Oh, absolutely. Okay, then, yeah. then I will. Yeah, then I will. Oh, yeah. Then I don't have to say anything. <laughs> wow. Well, but I will briefly. Yeah, yeah. But I will briefly. 
The only reason I say that is because this is exactly what we're going to be talking about this weekend. And you can, you can absolutely sign up. You can listen to the recordings at any time. They'll be up for months, okay. only for people who attended, but not for anybody else. So if you missed, you missed the first weekend, you can listen to that whole thing. And, and this is, I mean, I got it right here. Ta-da! We're going to be is. talking about it. There it is. Om Manatara, Om Manatara. So it is, it is the mantra of dream yoga. And um, just very briefly, it, it represents a number of things. But um, in this instance, you know, it represents the five Buddha families, right? So at the center of the mandala, you have Vairochana, and then you know how it goes around, Akshobhya, Ratnasambhava, Amitabha, Mogasiddhi. So each one of those syllables is the seed syllable for the five Jnana Buddhas, so the five meditation Buddhas. And so working with the seed syllables this way, especially if you do things like generation stage practice, that's what the practice we introduced in the first weekend, by the way, and you're doing it. So this, you're, I don't, you're not missing anything there. When you insert this mantra, you're, you're inserting um, a little bit more jet fuel for the generation stage practices where, um, you know, you visualize not just the lotus, you visualize the syllables. You can do it in English that everybody likes Tibetan, the Tibetans do, but if that doesn't work for you, you can do it in English. And then in so doing, you're, you're fundamentally invoking the energetic, the lucidity energetic of the five Buddha families. Um, and so this is a really powerful thing to do because they are the ultimate lucid dreamers, right? And so the five mm -hmm. Buddhas, these are the seed syllables for the five fundamental types of lucidity. That's pretty profound. And so by working with it, you're, you're basically tucking yourself to sleep, being hugged by the five Buddhas. That's pretty cool, man. You know, you're going to sleep um, in the embrace of the mind. This is, these are the uh, C-syllable archetypal sounds of the minds of the five principal Buddhas, the lucidity Buddhas. Yeah. So you're invoking that resonance. And, and by doing that, this is the magic jet fuel. And in addition to the kind of, you know, the mental muscle behind the visualization, this, the secret component that's happening here is the invocation of um, the power of devotion. Because by invoking your relationship it's through good. the seed syllables, you're asking for their help and they can help you. Um, whether that's internal activation from your own Buddha nature or whether it's so-called external superimposition from, from these energetics outside of you, doesn't matter. But um, yeah, then you can go to sleep not only with this visualization, but also with the recitation of that mantra. And so I use it like last night, I had a, I had a weird thing happen to my arm. So I was just in a lot of pain last night. I didn't sleep well at all. And it's never a, like a, oh crap situation. It's like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna practice. And so I spend a large part of the night just you know reciting endlessly over and over this mantra um, as a way to turn that particular episode into a practice so there's so much more to say about it yeah yeah but i sure. think that's enough to get you going I, I write a little bit i think i think i write a little bit about it in my book uh dream yoga i think there's a chapter or two on this sort of thing but it's precisely uh, what we're going to be riffing on so i'm sorry just quickly uh once lucid would that be a meditation to go right into i mean i know we can use lucid dreams for a lot of very powerful practice and it enhances it ninefold or whatever you know but using that mantra in uh a lucid dream would that actually invoke invite them in sorry i know i'm taking up more time well, you're okay. do it that's right yeah you could use it then you could use it as like a stage five 
dream yoga practice where, you know, you work with this, you know, if you do generation based practices, you know, the, the deities arrive out of seed syllables, right? Yeah. So this is the sound of their mind. This is their seed syllables. So in a certain way, it's just like you're saying, you, you can absolutely then use this as a type of dream incubation where you're basically incubating stage five dream yoga, where you use these seed syllables as a way to arise either as a front visualization or self-visualization as the deity. So for sure, absolutely. Um, this is all the kind of the super cool spiritual technology of full-blown dream yoga. So great questions. You're doing okay, super. Stuff. Thank you very much. Good stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Sonia. All right, next we'll bring in Thomas and then Myra. Hi, Andrew. Uh, first time on your broadcast. I'm really hey, glad you're doing it. And welcome. Uh, welcome. Yeah, thank you. My question is uh, concerns my lucid dreams and my non lucid dreams. Uh, my normal every night dreams tend to be visual and um, and, and a lot of thought, I've noticed, to thought and visual. But lucid dreams, for some odd reason, tend to be intensely musical. Oh, nice. Enter into a lucid dream, and boy, the radio is on, and it's loud, and it's beautiful music. And I'm astounded, like, wow, God, that's, I'm just entertained. I'm just enthralled with that. And then later on, I, I think when I wake up, it's like, well, I created that, didn't I? I created that music. But was it really all that special or was it just sort of me grooving inside of myself and I sort of made up music? So anyway, any thoughts on, on intense musical dreams and especially uh, intense musical lucid dreams? Yeah, that's really interesting. Are you a musician, Thomas? Are you? Yes, I am. What dead white man's music, or what do you what do you perform? <laughs> oh, I I I I'm sort of a folk guitarist and yeah, and that kind of thing. I teach guitar a bit of guitar too. So good for you. I'm I'm a musician myself, so I have a lot of music dreams. So a, a couple of questions. So so when you're having these dreams, they they are um, kind of already existing dreams that you wake up within. In other words, a dream initiated lucid dream and the dream's going along and something clues you into the fact that you're dreaming and you're lucid. So in other words, you are not actively generating this, right? This is already there. You just wake up to it. Is that what I you're wake saying? up into it, yes. Yeah, and so you're lucid. You're aware that you're dreaming and this is taking place. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's a dream initiated lucid dream. They're great. Um, they can occur under any kind of sensory modality most dreams tend to be visual, even though there's no eyes in there. Um, that's a very interesting thing to explore. But for some people, um, other, other, other you know, sense faculties tend to come online. And so music can certainly be one of them. Um, I'm really not sure whether it denotes some like particular propensity or even talent, but the fundamental thing is like what to do with them. Well, on one level, similar to the earlier question, you can just witness it. And that's really kind of cool. You know, you just don't do anything with it. You're just awake to the fact that you're dreaming and there's just this awesomely cool kind of music going on. What I might invite is see if you can change it. Um, you know, actively work now to transform the music. So if something's playing that you don't like, um, modulate it into a different key. Um, or bring in a different instrumentation or transform it from one instrument to another. 
because this then works with you know stage two, stage three dream yoga, where now you're simply starting to actively transform the contents of your mind using the medium of the dream. And so both are totally valid. Uh, the witnessing dream is, is totally cool, but at a certain point that might run its course. It's like, how many days can I just spend at the movies without you know, doing something different? And then you might wanna be more the, the producer, the director, and then you start to shape shift it. That's what I would do is, or here's the other thing. I mean, as a guitarist, what I would do, and I actually do this, I'm a pianist, is I, I would actually conjure up a guitar, literally, just say, okay, I, I wanna play the guitar tonight. And then if you're playing a composition, another option is actually see if you can rehearse that composition in your dream. There's a really interesting video that you can look up. Um, uh, I don't have the link obviously memorized, but it's a very interesting YouTube clip about a German researcher who studies this very gifted lucid dreamer who learns how to develop his proficiency playing an instrument in the lucid dream. Um, and so I think if you just Google those keywords, you'll find it. It's about an eight minute clip about this guy who learns how to play the ukulele in his dreams. I do it with a piano. I, I will conjure up the piano and, you know, um, I, no kidding. I will play an entire movement of a Beethoven sonata in my dream, start to finish. I will play a Rachmaninoff prelude, Rachmaninoff prelude Chopin etude, start to finish in my dream. And believe it or not, using the principles of neuroplasticity, what you do with your mind changes your brain. This will actually increase your daytime proficiency. You can lit literally, not a metaphor, literally practice your instrument in the dream. So if this is a natural display, those are all the options. Watch it, that's really cool. Personally, I would start to play with it. I would um, you know, transform it in the ways I mentioned, suggested, bring your guitar in there and say, hey, you know, I'm learning whatever this tune, I wanna practice this in my dreams tonight and then see if you could do that. That's when this stuff really starts to get cool. So that's what comes to mind, my friend. It's awesome. I mean, it's, it's a form of night school. It's, it's amazing what you can do in the dream arena. Literally anything you can do during the day, you can do in your dreams. And using these fund fundamental neurological principles, it can affect your daytime performance. I mean, this is no kidding. So um, that's what comes to mind. Thank you, Andrew. Welcome. Good stuff. Thanks, Thomas. Um, before I bring in Myra, let me just read this chat question we got from Dennis. Um, a question about reading in dreams. They say you cannot read in a dream. However, I recall dreams where I have read. Any comments? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely can read in a dream. It's just harder because mostly it's a left hemispheric action and that's shut off, right? So this is one way to actually tell whether you're having a hyper lucid dream or an out-of-body experience. <clears throat> It's a lot easier to read if you're having an out-of-body experience than it is if you're having a lucid dream. So this is one way to test that. You can definitely read in a dream. It's just harder. So um, I, I work with this, you know, sometimes intentionally. I'll, I'll actually try to read. And um, it's kind of a test of my stability. So as a general rule, because of the hemispheric activation, dream, uh, reading is harder in a dream. But it's not impossible you just have to kind of lean into it. So um, yeah, I'm not sure where else to go with that, Dennis, but that's, that's what comes to mind. One, it's absolutely one way to test whether you're having a hyper lucid dream or an OBE for sure. So. All right, great. Um, all right, now let's bring in Myra and then Judith. Myra. Hey, Andrew. Hi. So um, I'm being, taking a, a breath to try to be very, politically correct here, but 
Don't worry. Um, <laughs> just, be, just be yourself. Don't worry about being politically correct. Everybody here is fire away. Yeah. So we began this, you trying to help and for the community to build in the biggest bardo that we have faced as a humanity in many years, if not what we have seen. And right now we are in one of those big shifts again of another bardo, another opportunity that when you believe like I believe in terms of trying to really have an understanding of emptiness and seeing ultimate reality, we, can, we have to take responsibility for what is happening. And then you say today um, something about the ultimate truth being the word not having influence over us, but then there comes a thing, I have the responsibility of what is coming next. Um, and another thing, one of the beautiful things that I aim to is to have the kind of commitment and devotion that somebody like David Loy have, that commitment to what he's found to be his cause and his mission. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess the question is, I, it is very difficult not to become myself a fundamentalist from my point of view. Uh, and, and because it's such a visceral reaction to some of the events that I witness what I think is right and wrong. Can you help me out yeah. one more time? Because I think yeah. that we, 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 and also the Buddhist community and the meditation community have done a wonderful work of giving us tools to, to, to be compassionate right now. This is the moment, this is the obstacle we can step on and grow. Um, can you share a little bit more? Because it, I mean, my sleep has been awful. My whole body is contracted. Yeah, um. yeah, yeah. No, good question, Myra. Really good question. So, you know, it's, it's this delicate dance between reconciling um, absolute and relative truth. So we, we definitely want to pay respect and homage to appearances, to, to relative truth. Um, we need to take what is happening very, very seriously. If we don't, then these practices become actually more damaging than helpful. Then, you know, all the spiritual pathologies like spiritual bypassing, cosmological dualism, all these traps come into play where you just develop a dismissive attitude, you know, oh, it's all illusory, it's all a dream, it's all empty, it doesn't really matter. No, 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 that's not, that's not what's being said here. So the issue is centrifuging out relative from absolute. You probably heard me say this before, Myra, where we still wanna take things very, very seriously, but that does not follow that we have to take them literally. And so therefore, you know, as we wake up on the path, and again, this is another a maxim I say a lot, borrowed from my friend Ken Wilber, you feel things more, but they bother you less, they hurt you less, because you don't take them so solidly anymore. So you still feel them. In fact, you almost feel them more than before. That's fantastic. But then, um, you know, don't take that, uh, don't turn that take into a mistake by taking things too literally. And so, you know, fundamentalism, the only fundamentalism that we really should abide by is the fundamentalism and the allegiance to reality, to truth. And so for me, I think, you know, in a very real way, we're all fundamentalist extremists at levels we're not even aware of. I mean, if we believe in things, for instance, that's a type of fundamentalism. That's actually a type of extremism. We're just not even aware of it. So one thing is just to notice just the fact that you can identify this kind of urge to to um, it's called foundationalism actually 
um, just be aware that, oh my God, there it is again. That's, that's my reifying propensity. That's ego at work. And that's going to keep you up at night. That's definitely going to keep you up at night. So you notice that you feel the contraction. You realize that's just what ego does. Smile at it, let it go. And then it'll come up again, smile at it, let it go. Until eventually it, it starts to lose its grip um, because until it does, until you do that, you're conferring this power. Like we're talking about at the outset, you're, you're unwittingly conferring this power. Um, and then it comes back to haunt you and literally keep you awake. So take things seriously. That's honoring relative truth. You have to do that, but it doesn't follow that you have to take things literally. Um, and then that dance is that that's what constitutes the path. I mean, that's easier said than done, right? <laughs> easy to say, not so easy to do, but realize that if you don't do that, then that's an, an, an darkened rather than an enlightened relationship to the world. And you feel it. You feel that burdensome, that burdened view when it gets dark, it gets heavy you feel the load, you burn out, you get pissed off, you get irritated, you can't communicate, you contract. Those are all indications that you're reifying. And again, we have to be really patient and kind to ourselves because that's our default. I mean, that's just what ego does. This is a developmental issue, we all do it. But you may find yourself recognizing it a little bit more, recognition and liberation are potentially simultaneous. And that gesture in itself, you start to lighten the load and you know, therefore things just become a little bit more playful and less heavy. So something like that. Thank you. But there's also a level of action that we all should do, no? I mean, whatever what yeah. position we have in terms of the development, I mean, our position. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. Fundamentally, you want to act. Um, you know, these meditation tools only, only go so far. Otherwise, like I mentioned, I can't remember somewhere, this stuff is irrelevant. Of what relevance is this stuff it doesn't, if it doesn't help the world? And that's why I, I like David Loy's work so much, um, because fundamentally, if, if you can't take this stuff onto the streets, what's the point? Just to feel better? Why not take some drugs and watch a movie? You know, um, do something that's going to help. But in order to really help, tying it back into what I said at the beginning, it helps to know how to help. It helps to centrifuge out your projections from what's really happening, because then you're not responding, you're reacting. And so therefore you kind of have to do this preparatory psychological spiritual work to really help effectively because otherwise you're just lost in your projections of hope and fear and you're just reacting. Um, that's not helpful. We want to learn how to respond. And in order to do that, we have to take ownership of our projections. So yeah. Thank you. Gracias. <laughs> Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right, next we'll bring in Judith and then Joel and Michelle. Can you hear me, Andy? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Hi, Andrew. Um, Andrew, this weekend, last weekend, we did a retreat on Petro Rinpoche's book, um, The Nature of Mind. Oh, who's that? Who did that? Uh, Kilong Rinpoche. Oh, he's fantastic. Oh, I love yeah. that guy. He's awesome. Yeah, he really is. He's a very gentle man. Very sweet he's, man. Yeah. He, yeah, very sweet. But I, I came across this, um, we came across this paragraph, and I'd like to read it again because I'm not sure I understand it. And okay. the reason why I particularly like the last sentence is because I don't, um, sleep is such a problem for me. And um, when I do actually sleep, it's usually because I have to take drugs. And so I don't dream. And so what I try to do in the day is think to myself, well, this is a dream. 
And as I'm walking along, try not to have any thoughts, you know, just to sort of be in that space of um, no thoughts. So I'm, it does feel like a bit like a dream, if you know what I mean. Anyway, this is what he says. And I just like the last, I have to read the few sentences so okay. you get the gist of it. Usually it is during the, the time of deep sleep that clear, empty, intrinsic awareness is free of the tarnish of conceptual thought and you can maintain its true nature. From its dynamic appearance comes the ability to arouse the emanations and transformations of dreams. It can then be counted as recognizing the clear light of sleep. If that is the case, then when you arise in in the dream, even if you do not recognize it with mindfulness during dream time, it is still effective. I don't quite know what he means. Yeah, that's pretty ambiguous. I don't know what he means either. Effective is what? Um, right. That there, it's, it's, you could make some educated guesses. Um, it, yeah, again, I, I really don't know how to respond to that because okay. what, what effective in terms of what? Right. So everything prior to that was really pretty clear to me. Um, yeah. But effective, but it, effective in terms of what? That's that's not clear to me. So I'm not sure. So I can about that. when I read that last sentence, I thought, well, he's saying even if you do not recognize it with mindfulness during dream time, it's still effective. So. Well, but what's the effective? I mean, it's not a clear light dream if you don't recognize it. I mean, right. every, everything is everything is the manifestation of clear light. Everything. There's nothing. Yeah. The issue is one of recognition. So to me, it doesn't make sense. And again, I don't know if what he's saying is this, but you could ask Keelan Rinpoche, maybe he has an insight yeah. that, you know, if, if, if you don't recognize it, 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 I'm not quite sure what the effectiveness is because that's just non-lucidity. So even though it's essentially clear light, you're not recognizing it, you're not lucid. I don't understand right. why he would use the word effective. So I, I, right. can't, I can't answer that. I don't know. So, so I think it was just my hope that there was something in it. You no, know? no, you're, you're smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would ask him because, again, yeah, based on what I'm reading, it's like, I don't know what he's talking about there. Right. But I right. tracked it all the way up until then. Is it like, what do you mean effective in terms of what? So Right. Okay. So, Andrew, do you have any thoughts about how I can really work with it during the day? What's the it? Work with, you know, the same, getting the same kind of um, experience as you do in lucid dreaming during the day. Well, yeah, there's a ton you can do, you know, um, work with the practice of open awareness, work right. with the practices of a loose reform, study the teachings on emptiness. I mean, I hate to be glib, Judith, but it's basically um, do everything the that's on the path. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. Honestly, yeah. really, but yeah. specifically, specifically, study the teachings on emptiness, practice a loose reform, and practice open awareness. Um, that's what I would and, do. Yeah, and sometimes I find sort of, if I can get into that space of non-duality, it gives me a moment of, um, a moment of, you know, that feeling of, oh God, it's hard to explain, but you know, when you, when you just, tap into that it's just like when you're meditating you you have a moment at least i only have a moment of rig what i think might be rigpa yeah well here's the deal you're always in non-duality you're always in rigpa yeah just like the, the first thing about the clear light mind 
this, this is incredibly important. You're always in non-duality. You're always in the clear light mind. You're always in Rigpa. That's all there is, really. The issue, again, is one of recognition. So it's not, it's not a, a question of getting into it. You're already in it. It's a question of recognizing it. That's, that's yeah. the key. And again, the pisser here is it's, it's hiding in plain sight. It's so obvious we don't see it. That's the kicker. We just have and to what, open. That's why open awareness comes into play. You just have to open and realize, oh my goodness, it's here all the time. That's and why it. is it so fleeting? Why, why is it There's so There's no stability hard? for dozens of reasons. Um, meditation, the mind isn't stable enough. Mm-hmm. Not enough merit. This is what we're talking about is, is on the five stages, the five paths. You're talking about third path material. Um, there's a reason it's called the third path, the path of seeing, and not the first or the second path, because you need the first and second paths to achieve not only the recognition, but the ensuing stability. So why isn't it? Everything connected to the path of accumulation and the path of union is why. And that's why you go through paths one and two before you reach path three, um, because not only will you not recognize it, but you will definitely not sustain it. It just won't last. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you have, to, you have to understand the first two paths. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Judith. Yep. Good luck with your studies. He's a great teacher. Thanks, Judith. All right. Before we bring in Joel, let me read this question in the chat from Tim. Uh, your talk about projections was very interesting. A large part of Jungian psychology is recognizing and withdrawing projections to achieve greater psychological wholeness. It seems that becoming lucid is a form of withdrawing projections. Do you think that the work with lucid dreams would greatly enhance this process? Oh, huge. Are you kidding me? Yeah, like colossal. Um, and that's why I briefly mentioned that's one of the great, great gifts of lucid dreaming is understanding this is foundational projection that can be discovered in uh, lucid dreaming dream yoga. So absolutely, positively, 100%, 100%. All right, let's bring in Joel with the audio. Hey, Joel. Hi, Andrew. Aloha from Dorje De Ling on the Big Island. Yeah, I don't want to hear about it, man. <laughs> You're just being mean. Okay, well, aloha to everyone. Um, Good for you. Good for you. Just um, a little story that I think you'll appreciate and that seems resonant with a lot of the sharing today, and I'd love your comments on this. Okay. We had a close relationship with Zong Rinpoche, who was abbot of Ganden Monastery nice. in Tibet. Yeah, I've been there. Yep. Yeah, remarkable man. And we brought him to Seattle at one point, and um, very nonchalantly one day when we were just sitting around having tea, um, he said he was talking about when he was studying for his exams, how he used to, before he'd go to sleep, take the pages of his pages um, his books and lay them out around his room. That's right. And he'd come out in his dream body at night and he'd memorize them. Cool. That's and, really cool. Um, yeah, he shared it in such a nonchalant kind of way. I just wanted to offer you love that it. story. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, thank you so much. I haven't heard that before. I just love it. Yeah, talk about night school, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Thanks for sharing that. That's great. You're welcome. I thought you'd appreciate that. Yeah. 
Terrific. And so how did you spell his name? Just D D Z O N G Zong Rinpoche? No, Z O N G Zong Z O N G. He was Zong, uh, yeah, um, Abbot of Mon uh, Ganden Monastery from Yeah, Maria. I love it. Thank you for the offering. I love it, my friend. Yeah, take care, brother. Awesome, take man. Care. Wear your sunscreen. Hate you. Okay, we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Uh, Thanks, Joel. Okay, I've got one more question queued up, um, unless more come in, but this is from Sally. On projection, when I'm affected more than I am informed, I have been looking at my ego and seeing that it got a quote unquote chink and felt threatened. So I use it to see that I am not my ego. Is this what you are talking about? Read it again, that's not totally clear to me. Um, just read it one more time. Sure. So on projection, when I am affected more than I, more that I am informed, I have been looking at my ego and seeing that I got a chink and felt threatened. So I use it to see that I am not my ego. Is this what you are talking about? Yeah. Um, but there, that's a secondary application. The fundamentally, yeah, that's the more foundational kind of ownership of the process of projection, but um, the emphasis on that statement is more on that colloquial expression. But yes, fundamentally, you can, you can take it even deeper into what you're referring to, for sure. But the emphasis of what I was generating was a little bit more kind of entry level. So yeah, basically, if I understand what you're saying, uh, yes. <laughs> cool. All right. All right. Well, I yeah, I don't have anything else queued up. Yay! Great, everybody. Oh, this is great. Right on the hour mark. I love it. So same time, same place next week, one o'clock. Um, what else to share or say? Not a whole lot. Join us. Uh, you know, book, book study group still happening on Tuesdays. You can still join that. The Tibetan book, book of the Dead course Wednesdays. You can definitely join that. Otherwise, same time, same place again on Thursday for session 32. Unbelievable. 32. And we're still alive and cook, uh, kicking. So um, thank you, everybody, for joining me. See you next week, and uh, have a great week. Ciao. Leave the chat room open for just a second, Andy, if you can. Okay, bud. Thanks, bud.